Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to the 100th episode of Beyond the Screenplay. The podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about the 2007 film No Country for Old Men. Again, I'll get into that in a second. (laughs) Written and directed, of course, by the Coen brothers, based on the novel by Corman McCarthy. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, friendo. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. So here we are, 100 episodes later. It's kind of insane. That's a lot. And so the reason that we are talking about No Country is that way back when, over two years ago, apparently, when we were... So basically, this is like the inception of the podcast story. Mm -hmm. It was like hanging out, all of us as a team, talking about movies, and someone had the idea of like, this could be a good like podcast, maybe. But wanted to try it out and do a first, you know, a first go at it. So we all met up in my living room, sat around a table and talked about No Country for Old Men. It was rough, but fun. Afterward, realized that the good audio with the good microphones was not recording. (laughs) So we only had a backup that was recorded on my iPhone. So we released that to patrons. So that exists, that that very first conversation. You can listen to it. I don't know if right. anyone ever has, but it's out there. But we haven't. And we thought it would be fun for 100 episodes to go back to the very beginning and do a new episode about No Country for Old Men. So none of us have listened to that original episode. I really don't know what that conversation was like, but we're going to have a new conversation about one of the greatest films of all time, which I'm very excited about. Trisha, it's obviously a, a big favorite of yours. You have a very big grin on your face. So <laughs> yeah, so this is going to be really fun. Before we jump in, just want to say like, thank you. Like, thank you to you listener right now that is listening to this for making this show possible. If you're a patron, thank you for helping us grow the show and push it to be something more substantial. And you guys, the team, Trisha, Alex, Brian, thank you guys. You know, like when we were talking about starting a podcast, I was kind of nervous because it's like a more vulnerable thing, like putting yourself yeah. out there and like mm. the videos and less than screenplay, I can just kind of be a disembodied voice and like my personality doesn't have to be out there. And so doing something like this was scary, but I'm just very grateful that we have the camaraderie that we do and that everyone was patient and willing to make it something special. And I'm really proud of what we've done. So thank you guys so, so much for going on this journey. Well, thank you for, thank you for being <laughs> our, our helmsman at the, at the, the helm of the ship. Uh, metaphors, <laughs> like none of us. The captain? <laughs> the word you're looking for. None of us good at word speak, but, uh, but <laughs> thank you for, for taking us on this journey with you. I feel like he's our Captain Picard. He's, yes. our, he's our Patrick Stewart's kind of captain of a starship. The Aww. kindest thing anyone's ever said. <laughs> I was just going to say, we have 100 episodes of evidence that Michael is not actually a robot. <laughs> Maybe like 80 episodes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the, the evidence trends toward not robot, at least. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And thank you, of course, to our producer, Vince, who is always here listening behind Vince. the scenes. We love you, He's Vince. yet to appear on a show, but one day. And of course, our editor, Eric Schneider, who makes us sound smarter. Oh, my God. And better, <laughs> more well-spoken than we than we are. Okay. Yeah, good luck with that thing I said about the ship, though, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> 
anybody can do it, Eric can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no country for old men. So the reason we chose it way back when is that we just done a lesson from the screenplay video about it. And since then, it's become one of the most popular videos. I think it's easily in the top 10. It has 2 million views. And so it was really that was one of the first like collaboration videos also like we did in team and Brian that you like spearheaded and it was sort of like that whole thing. So there's a lot to talk about there from the video. But also since then, we've learned, Trisha, that it, it was on your top 10 of everything for all time, number one or something, right? Tell us about how you feel about No Country for Old Men, Trisha. Uh, are there enough superlatives? It is definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm going to go its top three like for sure it's probably like jurassic park and casablanca and this and like nice. depending on the day i might you know pick different ones to be the leader leader there the coen brothers are my favorite filmmakers and i consider this to be absolutely their masterpiece i think every frame of it is perfect it is a very rare example of a movie where every single moment and shot and every cut in it, every like beat of every performance, I think is just all so tightly woven together and so completely and coherently expresses this rich and fascinating theme. And like no corner of it is wasted. No fragment of it does not complete like that puzzle. And the picture that the puzzle makes is so meaningful and like speaks into the deep sort of philosophy of life and just kind of hits me at my core of like questions that I have about like life and the universe and everything. I, yeah, yes. Thank you, Brian. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I, I grapple with a lot of the same questions about, you know, God and the universe that the Coen brothers do mm. and justice and, and all of these kinds of things that this movie is about. And the Coen brothers, you know, deal with these themes across their filmography, but in No Country, I feel like they've fully expressed a very bleak, but beautifully expressed conclusion sort of about some of these questions and about these themes. And so I just cannot get over any part of this movie. And I promise I will try not to monopolize this podcast <laughs> <laughs> with just all everything that I want to praise about it. But I, I think it's phenomenal. So uh, let's go. Okay, great. So Brian, you wrote the video way back when. What are your thoughts on No Country? Have they changed since you know the last time you watched it? Any any new feelings watching it more recently? Well, to set the record straight, Trisha always says she's so jealous that I got to write the video. And I will clarify that I did not write this video. <laughs> I pitched it and wrote a first draft, which had a Men in Black 3 joke and a Childish Gambino <laughs> reference. Yeah. <laughs> and then Michael said, thanks. Welcome to the team. I'll be back. And then he made the video that got 2 million <laughs> views. So I I think I, I put the curtain thing, like the uh, the fact that he puts one curtain over the other. And then when he comes back, he sees they're parted. Something around there is was my contribution to to the video. <laughs> it's a critical part of the video. Yeah, yeah. The whole the whole two plus two concept, and uh, the the cool thing is watching the movie this time for my I don't know eighth time. I saw even more two plus two, even more things. From oh, like, oh right, that's yeah. how that was, or that's what he was thinking there. That's what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't think my thoughts on this movie have changed much at all in fourteen years, and I and that's a good thing. It was on my top ten of the odds, and it was such a frustrating but in a way where i knew it was supposed to be 
experience the first time watching it. Uh, and I just, all I wanted to do was go read Ed's monologue and try to get a yeah. sense of like, what is this movie actually trying to say? Why did it do the things it did? And of course, then I had to watch it again. And yeah, every time I watch it, I, I get I get new things out of it, but I feel like I have the same experience every time. And I mean that in the most positive way, which is just I'm right. I'm entertained. I'm giggling. I'm frustrated. I'm depressed. I, you know, yeah. it's just like and, and then you have the little glimmer of hope in the final, like, I don't know, 30 seconds of the movie, maybe where you're like, oh, maybe there's like this spark of a thought of a wick of a candle at the end of this dark very dark tunnel that is you know there's a fire up ahead nope then i woke up and then i woke up yeah <laughs> so so yeah i i just i love this movie and uh and no i would not say it, I, my thoughts have changed much on it but they have just always been positive and they continue to be mm. awesome yeah i feel the same way so i'll just say that that's my report alex <laughs> what are your thoughts <laughs> I had a whole journey with this movie because it was the year that There Will Be Blood came out, right? This was mm, like right. the weird competition in 2007. Mm-hmm. Should between... not be a competition. Yeah, it's like, it makes no actually, sense at all. They're quite different <laughs> movies, but I think for some reason, people categorize them as like the same type of movie, I guess, you know, kind of a tour Western somewhat disconcerting bleak uh, bleak oscar movies shot in marfa texas i mean the landscapes do look right basically exactly the same because they were shot within a few miles of each other it's not unreasonable to compare these movies yes right but but yeah but but because of that there was i was kind of buying into that mindset where when it was oscar time i was on team there will be blood Uh, because mm. i you know that is peak post film school Alex that is all about you know PTA all about uh you know that that really cool Johnny Greenwood score all about the kind of the, the bigness of that movie <laughs> I was a little bit frustrated with what I now think is the most amazing thing about this movie which is it's it's just efficient sparse perfection <laughs> I think it's amazing it's amazingly perfect now but at the time when I first saw it I was kind of frustrated I'm like I do want more score i do want more like to this movie i want the ending to make sense i i don't know what's happening anymore in this last act like where am i what what what's going on so i so i did i only saw the movie once in theaters and i was making that weird unfair comparison to there will be blood and i just kind of decided there will be blood one in my mind (laughs) and so I didn't like No Country for Old Men as much. But man, watching it again, every time I revisit it, I love it more and more and more. And what you said, Trisha, seems so accurate to me, which is, especially upon repeat viewings, this movie reveals itself to just be insanely, weirdly perfect. As far as just like on a technical level, even just like you said, this edit always feels right. This shot feels right. This sound design feels right. This performance feels right. This casting feels right. Like it's one of those things where, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about, you know, when a movie bumps for us or when, you know, something comes up in a film where it kind of knocks you out of its world or it suddenly breaks the illusion of like this great story you're wrapped up in because there is an like a a performance that's kind of off or a visual effect that looks bad or whatever. This movie doesn't have any of those moments. There's no moment where I bump. Mm -hmm. There are moments where I am like Brian said, kind of frustrated or getting confused or I, I, I I'm challenged by this movie, but none of that feels like it was a bump where it was like a mistake or 
something that could have been done better. Everything feels like exactly what the Coen brothers intended. It almost is impossible to to make a movie, period, and to get all the way through the entire process and have every moment fulfill what seems like your intent does feel like a minor miracle. So yeah, watching this movie again just this week, it was like a reminder of like, wow, yeah, this doesn't happen very often where a movie right. survives the entire process this intact and this full of purpose and perfection. So what an achievement. And it is among my favorite movies, I think. The more I watch it, the more it, it like moves up the list. I mean, look, sometimes your snap judgments aren't aren't the best. When there were two shows coming out about behind the scenes of a comedy show, I was like, oh, which one's going to succeed? The Aaron Sorkin one or the Tina Fey one? And <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> and after eventually watching 30 Rock, I was so happy to be wrong because I don't want seven seasons of <laughs> Studio, 60. Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Although some of it was great. Oh, sure. But if I had to choose which one of those shows would go on for seven seasons, 30 Rock. And to be clear, people that are on Team There Will Be Blood are also welcome at this table. Like, Absolutely. It did weirdly pit us against each other. And we don't need to be. And no country welcomes you. There is plenty of nihilism to go around. (laughs) Yes. There is no reason for you to feel alienated (laughs) by this film. You also can wallet like... Just wallow in the bleakness of the American West. (laughs) Yeah. It's here for you. Pick your poison. Although I did come into this with a with a frustration of PTA and a love for the Coen brothers. So it was Mm -hmm. like no question for me which of these Mm -hmm. movies I was gonna care about. Oh, hard Mm -hmm. same. But still, Mm -hmm. it's yeah. We'll we'll get to that movie at some other time. Right. Yeah. It's weird that we still haven't talked about it because I was hardcore on There Will Be Blood side also. At least Alex, you saw No Country for Old Men before deciding (gasps) which was better i was just like oh wow. Cohen's like no there will be blood is the best oh thing ever my God. <laughs> <laughs> so i've i've had quite an arc where yes even I more know. of an arc yeah <laughs> all right trish and i are going to meet on one side of the airport and michael <laughs> and alex will be on the other side and we'll just run at each other and fly and see what happens right. <laughs> civil war i will say watching it this time after watching it i don't know how many times you know during the process of making a video you kind of like mm. wear the movie out a little bit. I still loved it and enjoy it and it all worked for me. The only thing that changed was there were moments where I could kind of see the seams a little bit mm. where it's like, this is still a gown is the metaphor I'm going to use. This is still okay. like a piece of clothing that is perfect. But if you look closely, you can you can tell that it was made by a human where they're just like a little bit. But like that kind of adds. That to is the Michael's perfection. critique of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell yes. it was made <laughs> by a human it. being. <laughs> I sus- I highly suspect humans were involved <laughs> in making this film. And that should not be how films are made. <laughs> Robot. Yeah. Anyway, which ultimately I think just makes me appreciate it more because it, it takes it down from that level of you know, godly perfection and just like this was made by people doing really, really good work. And like, it is essentially perfect, even if like, you know, you can see like a tiny crease here or there. I want to hear about these seams and and what stood out to you this time that didn't stand out before. They're super minor to the point where I, I don't think I can even point to that many. I feel like there are like occasionally like line readings that feel like, oh, maybe that was like, like, by Zero- whom? 
just like again, this is like the most nitpicky of nitpicky, where it's like okay, zero point one percent. Maybe that was a little too funny for this moment. Like mm. maybe it was just off just a hair, mm. or like there are CGI animals and they're very brief, but they do like there are make CGI me go, animals. oh look at that CGI animal. So just like the tiny little things, the tiniest possible little nitpicks are. Is all I'm is all I'm saying. I will say virtually every line reading by Tommy Lee Jones is really funny. Like there are mm-hmm. except for the ones like at the very end where there's right. just nothing but like tragedy and emptiness in his uh-huh. life at the end. But up until that point, nearly every line reading is pretty much a little bit funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's that's cordial of him. <laughs> right. You know, looking for a man who has recently drunk milk like <laughs> yeah. that. You know, right. it's just like it is supposed to be sarcastic, right? That's a characterization thing that he is doing with Sheriff Ed Tom Bell. But it does often call attention to him and to itself. And I think this movie needs that note of comedy. Like, not that there are not funny moments with all the characters. Like, I think that's one of the most brilliant things about this is that even when your heart is in your throat and you are so convinced that Sugar is going to kill whoever he's talking to. You're also a little bit laughing because the character doesn't know what's coming, but you do, right? There's this movie is so intimate that, you know, you're inside every moment of it in a way that none of the individual characters are. Mm. So, like thinking about, you know, the sort of pivotal scene where Sugar is challenging that man at the gas station, right? Where he kind of like chokes on his peanuts and he's like, you married into it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he's like... <laughs> does a spit take, basically? <laughs> yeah, he basically does. And, yeah, it's it's big, right? It's like, it's kind of a big-ish, as big as this movie gets, which is right. very, very downbeat but and very yeah. droll. But still, it's a little bit of like, a, uh, you know, and we understand that this man is playing with his life, right? Or like, this scene is going to end with his death, probably. Or at least there's a decent chance of that. But yet we're inside of Shiger's head. We're also inside of like the subtext immersed in it. So there's humor to be found in all of that. There's a base layer of humor, which is really remarkable um, that this movie is able to pull that off. Yeah, I think it's something we talked about with um, Lord of the Rings, which is it does a lot to have characters who themselves have a sense of humor. Right. So, But not mm-hmm. only does Ed, so does Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. And so does mm-hmm. Chigurh to, to a certain extent. Yeah. There are times where he is finding the comedy in a, a certain moment or he is the one who, for as much as we think of his performance as being so this one bleak tone, he does kind of show little shades of of kind of, for lack of a better word, humanity there. And then in case you were worried about your movie getting too bleak, here's Stephen Root and Woody Harrelson (laughs) (laughs) to liven things up. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, watching the behind the scenes, apparently in the book, which I have not read, uh, but apparently in the book, Chigurh is is described kind of simply as he has no sense of humor. And that's kind of all the description Mm -hmm. that happens. And so Javier Bardem and the Coens had to kind of build out a character that felt true to the essence of that but still felt believable and like the he could take up space on screen and not just be like dour or you know kind of two-dimensionally robot killer person and i feel like that the comedy does like giving him a little bit of you know i don't think someone could tell him a joke and he would laugh but like finding the irony in right. situations 
like amusing does kind of give him that extra dimension. Yeah. And I love that they gave that line to Carson Wells where he's talking to, you know, Moss about it. And he's like, well, how would you describe him? He's like, well, I would say he doesn't have a sense of humor, right. you know? And then at that point, it that line itself almost becomes a joke because of everything we've seen from Sugar up until that point. That saying he doesn't have a sense of humor is true, but also an understatement. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that it is true because Shigur, like he, he can't be talked down from something. He, he's not going to be disarmed sure. through humor, like directed at him. There's such pleasure that comes from watching his interactions with these ordinary people <laughs> because he is basically an alien. Like he's, yes. an, he's an alien who's come to planet earth and is remarking on the weirdness of like everyday, just conversation or the things we say to each other. And, it's always I find it extremely pleasurable in a film to get to watch the way that we conduct ourselves in society be called into question. And, and the way he does it is very intimidating. You know, he, he, you've got this environment, this time and place where people are very polite and kind of assume the best about strangers. And he just totally screws with that <laughs> left and right. And it's really it's both tense because you you can feel the social tension on top of the mm-hmm. mortal tension of the scene. And it's, it just adds to that, like that kind of uncomfortable humor left and right, which is just, it's just so great. Yes. I like that the humor, I feel like it's part of even the thematic conversation. Cause I guess it's like, uh-huh. right. The whole thing is like about life. And so there's a lot that can be encapsulated in that, but that Sheriff Ed Tom even has that line of like, I laugh at myself sometimes ain't a whole lot else you can do, right? Mm. Like that's kind of mm. in the text also of like sometimes the absurdity of and just like the reckless, meaningless violence of existence is so incomprehensible. All you can do is laugh. And so I like that this movie mm. is funny while also talking about all those things. Which is a hallmark of Coen Brothers movies, right? Like they are so interested in like, yeah, the bleakness and the violence and the sort Mm. of chaos of existence. And yet all they're kind of left with is humor. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to get too much into it, but their movie right after this one was Burn After Reading, which is one of their comedies. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you've seen it, definitely has some very violent and shocking and sort of horrifying moments. and certainly trades on a lot of the same themes that they're exploring in in No Country. And No Country, I feel like, is a really balanced sort of nihilism, which is like, if all of life is meaningless and there is no justice, then it's funny sometimes and tragic at others, but here we all are. It's sort of like a very straightforward, like, frank look at all of that. Whereas I feel like some of their other comedies get more into, like, we're going to make fun of people who think that this is tragic or like they 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 mm, sort of mm-hmm. move more towards like aggressive comedy about sort of the chaos and tragedy of existence. Ah, oh, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
Well, it's something we talked about on um, Big Lebowski podcast where mm-hmm. I talked about the this sort of what I call implied magic that the Coen brothers like to exactly. do, which is some movies like Barton Fink or Hudsucker Proxy. It's just like, oh, no, we literally have real magic happening here. Like we just time just stopped or whatever. And then you have the more nuanced, like the stranger in Big Lebowski who just sort of shows up and he's talking to to the camera so like there's a camera in his universe that we are on the other side of and for this being the coen brothers most down-to-earth movie uh maybe true grit is is a little closer but for being a movie that is not trying to be sort of wacky in that coen brothers way you do have this character vanton chigurh who himself is he is an idea. He's not even meant right. to be a human. Ethan Cohen says of, of the character in the book, he says quite clearly in the book, he's a personification of the world, which is an unforgiving, and capricious place. The embodiment of that is the whole coin tossing thing that gives the character place and it doesn't have to do with good and evil. So just this sort of like this life and death and consequence or just random chance it's all inevitable it is all going to happen so then that is what that is who this character van tonsugar is it's like it doesn't even matter whether we think he is a real human being with an origin story or if he is just like literally death or you know some sort of manifestation of an idea that somehow exists that we can see in in flesh because that's not the point of what the movie is doing and i want to read um from the carla jean scene uh with with him in the book i'll do that later but it's interesting that shigur knows that that's what he is so Mm -hmm. it's sort of you know when when carla jean says like oh no it's just you there's no and he's like no no this is the way it is so it's almost like you kind of get the sense that i'm glad the movie never says you know (laughs) this character is a god or something but you kind of get the sense that both the filmmakers and the character himself know that he that that is who he is playing in this world i got here the same way the coin did right right Mm. i was thinking about it and it it reminded me of i mentioned for my what am i watching recently malcolm gladwell did this three-part series on the little mermaid and kind of the history of fairy tales was part of that and how fairy tales back in the day weren't stories where the bad guys get punished and the good guys always win like the lessons they were imparting were more about like just the unpredictability and unfairness of life actually Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. like the kind of dumb sister that like doesn't know what she's doing goes out to get milk and then ends up stumbling upon a necklace and now she's the queen like like unfair (laughs) random stuff like that right and this movie like is maybe one of the only examples we have of that, like in a modern Mm. kind of context of like, it does feel like a fairy tale, like for all the reasons you're saying, Brian, like he's the personification of a thing. He's not like a a person where you need to know the backstory and all this stuff. And then the ending is, of course, not a tale of like, good guys win and bad guys lose and there is justice and there is like, it subverts all of that. And it's so disturbing to us as a modern audience because we're like, well, that's not how stories are supposed to work that's maybe how reality works right but that's not how stories are supposed to work and yeah, i just I don't love want that, <laughs> that <laughs> like this movie just breaks that wide open and makes you sit with that uncomfortable well it's a really fine line to walk because if you have stories where the events are fundamentally unrelated and they're not tied together by anything, then they're simply not stories. They're not followable. We lose patience for them. We don't want them, Mm -hmm. right? So events need to be caused, right? Like we talk about how in film, you know, in in an ideal world, you have like becauses, 
between scenes where it's like, because this and then this like was caused by that. And there's like a chain of causality. And if we don't have that, then we start to get really frustrated where it's like, why am I watching this scene? It's not caused by anything. It came out of nowhere. I think one of the ways that the Coen brothers achieve this is because they introduce randomness really early on in this movie where we are sort of trained to expect it by the movie a little bit. You know, all good movies sort of teach you how to watch them. And right. this movie teaches you how to watch it from pretty early on. And I think one of the biggest factors in this is the Mexican drug cartel and the sort of like cast of whoever those guys are. We're never shown who they are. They're just sort of this like faceless entity of people that are there to interfere because they also want to get the money, but we're never going to see any of them up close really there's like one moment where one of those guys walks up to carla jean's mom at the bus station and talks mm -hmm. to her for a minute and gets some information mm -hmm. from her but other than that we don't meet any of them ever we have no idea who they are and they effectively serve as interlopers really quickly i did like a full 20 minute thematic analysis about no country for old men <laughs> in a video that i wrote for wisecrack so if you're interested in the history of westerns from classic westerns to revisionist westerns to neo westerns and film noir and their influences on no country for old men thematically <laughs> you can check that video out <laughs> it's long i won't get into it we'll put a link in the description yes but one of the things i got to get into in that video a little bit was what interlopers are in literature and I don't feel like they're very, they're talked about enough because they're not often employed by writers, but interlopers in literature are like agents of chaos, essentially, who are there to swoop in and purposefully confound like schemes and plans that characters make. As we know in storytelling, characters need to make plans. It helps the audience understand where the movie's going next. And interlopers are there not to be like central antagonists or to have clear motivations. We never need to know what their motivations are. They're just there to confound plans essentially. And so the Mexican drug cartel, they serve as interlopers and they turn out to be critical interlopers by the film's end, obviously, because they're the ones that take out Moss off screen mm -hmm. two thirds, mm -hmm. uh, three quarters of the way through the movie's runtime. Disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> that term, by the way, popularized by the author Saki, who wrote a story called The Interlopers, which I believe was from the early 1900s that you can read. But basically that story is about like characters that are in the woods and there's like a long family feud and it's like sort of a character study on like, will they ever forgive each other? And then the end of that story is they both get eaten by wolves. Mm. So. Well, on the topic of Trisha things, let's just talk about <laughs> theme for a minute, because I do think this movie is so imbued just in the text itself, in the dialogue, there are thematic discussions happening. And the whole, like the final act or whatever you would call it of this movie is essentially just like talking about theme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's nothing else happening. <laughs> anymore which is like it which makes it's my it, dream ending it makes movie. sense why this is like the top three yeah because it's an interesting thematic journey this movie takes me on because it's not just like super simple it's doing a few things there's there's the usual coen brothers randomness and unfairness of life and reality in the universe and then there's this generational thing mm -hmm. there's this time and place thing going on like in addition to the larger just the universe is kind of random and a, a big joke. And so, yeah, I guess, Trisha, take it away. Like, 
talk about how you read th- those two things kind of being put together in this in this novel in this movie you know why this time why this place why this character that Tommy Lee Jones plays how does that connect to the to the Coen brothers thing like like why is this the movie that nailed it finally you know you know in this time and place to address this like sort of as simply as possible i think the answer really does lie in genre mm. and that's why i spent so much time in the wisecrack video you can watch talking about the history of westerns as a genre but westerns particularly as a genre are concerned with ideas of justice right what is justice where does it come from you know in the simplest terms in classic westerns justice is like good guys versus bad guys people are only good or only bad and the good guys Uh, administer justice onto the bad guys. And Tommy Lee Jones's character at Tom Bell in this movie is literally like a white hat wearing sheriff that comes Mm. from like a long line of sheriffs and lawmen. And he tells you that in his 90 second opening monologue. It's it's a full (laughs) minute and a half of like, let me just tell you, which is fascinating because we don't meet him after that for like quite a while. For a long time. Just the note that I wrote was like, opening monologue is disgustingly good. Was the mm. first note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And it's all theme. Like, yeah. right. it's another thing. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Open a movie with monologues about theme. Close the movie with monologues about theme. <laughs> but anyway, so there's, you know, sort of classical Western sort of ideas about justice. Revisionist Westerns are more about like morally gray worlds that are like navigated by people like Llewellyn. So you have like, Mm -hmm. basically Sheriff Bell is straight out of a classic Western. Llewellyn is sort of straight out of like a revisionist Western sort of from the 60s. It's like, there's money. I'm trying to do the moral thing. Like he goes back and takes that guy some water, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting moment in the movie Mm -hmm. that like he steals the money and then goes all the way back out there. I love the way it's shot also. And it has that like, Mm -hmm. they reuse that shot later of like, this is the shot that we use when Moss is like, can't sleep and is about to make up his mind about something. It's just like, it like cranes it down at this weird speed. Also, like there's just something about the way it's shot that just feels like other in such a great way. And I just like, we have to talk about Deacon still, but yes, continue. Yes. Anytime I have like a moral nagging about something that I can't <laughs> get away from, I always say like, I'm fixing to do something dumber than hell, but I'm going to go do it anyway. <laughs> That's I love it. But then the neo-Western, you know, or film noir, which neo-Westerns often blend genres and particularly from noir, which Coen brothers love to do because they love noir movies, mm-hmm. are sort of about, yeah, like the sort of, moral-less, justice-less chaos of like sort of modern life. And so if you can think of Ed Tom Bell being straight out of a classic Western and Llewellyn being straight out of a revisionist Western, you could think of Chigurh as being straight out of like noir or neo-Western as like an embodiment of there is no justice to speak of. So Mm. I think that when you like sort of close that loop where, you know, the whole time we're maybe expecting like some kind of revisionist Western style karma to get right to Chigurh by the end. Right. Because that's kind of what revisionist Westerns are about. They're like, there is justice. It maybe doesn't come from the lawmen, but it comes from the universe. And like the car crash, like, right. like that's supposed to be where he gets his comeuppance. Yeah. Exactly. Like people who live by violence die by violence. So it's going to happen to him. It'll happen eventually. Like that's kind right. of that sort of moral code. And then when that, when Llewellyn doesn't get him, 
you still are expecting maybe maybe there will be a confrontation with Sheriff Bell and Bell will find him eventually. And then Bell just kind of like gives up. Mm-hmm. Right. in the face of like i don't know what to do about this i feel overmatched yeah so much there yeah i brought up the idea of the filmmaker gods which i'll wait till my lesson to really talk yeah. about but it's sort of that like the car crash is supposed to be the deus ex machina but then they're very purposely going like no sorry you don't get that you know and mm-hmm. and if you look at the characters of of bell and Llewellyn, they are both as you were saying trisha like they are telling you about this theme where bell's opening monologue is you know i don't want to see something I don't understand. So I, you know, I want, th- I want to hear about the old ways where you didn't have to carry a gun and uh, things like I'm, he's very scared of the future, his own mortality. He's like, I don't, I don't want any part of it. And then you have Moss. There's this echoed line between Moss and then Ellis, the, the guy who Bell talks to at the end where mm-hmm. Llewellyn is talking to the the woman at the pool. And, you know, he, she says, oh, is your, your wife, is that who you're looking for? He says, yeah, half the time. She says, well, what about the rest of the time? He says, just looking for what's coming. And she says, yeah, but you can't see that. Yeah, nobody ever sees that. Nobody ever mm. sees that. And then Ellis says, uh, you know, in his lovely little speech to Bell, he says, you can't stop what's coming. That's vanity, you know, and, and that's sort of the the interesting thing is, is <laughs> Moss seems to be at least a little more accepting of the world as it is because he is, you know, younger. But Bell is very clearly just sort of terrified of it. And the, the look on Tommy Lee Jones face when he g- gives that last monologue, he looks like a child who is who is yeah. scared you know and and for someone who is sort of so flippant and everything during this movie he he just is so like he's so vulnerable in that moment and i love it but yeah and then of, and then of course Shigurt plays this force this thing that they are talking about this inevitability you know that is coming for them and and he can't be stopped but he you know the only reason as you were saying trisha the only reason bell survives is because he worries about himself more than anything else. Like he, he's sort of, you might call him a coward, but he also is just like, I want to live longer. So I'm going to not go after, I'm going to not put myself in dangerous way and hope that I can live longer as a result. Well, actually I would like to get your thoughts because I read it differently every time I watch it because Bell doesn't give up before he actually does go back and try one last time mm-hmm. at the hotel room mm-hmm. where Moss died. And I've watched it a thousand times because they show us a shot of Shiger in the room. Right. What do we make of this? What do we make of it? Like, I, I don't know what is being communicated. Like I have this idea in my brain that maybe Shiger is in the room next door. Yeah. I was wondering that. No, but there's like, it's he's like pretty clearly, but he's like looking room. at the open keyhole. Yeah. Mm. Like it's like a shot reverse shot. Really yeah. Clearly. Yeah. So I I'm I want to I'm scrubbing through because I want to verify this. I rewatched this scene because I was like freaking out. I watched night. it so many times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's really fascinating. This time I caught and I'm scrubbing through because I want to make sure that this is the case. But I'm pretty sure that one of the final shots in that scene is you see uh, a dime on the yeah, floor, yeah. like heads up. And so to me, that just made me read it as like the coin toss went at Tom's way this time but mm-hmm. he didn't call it but he didn't call it and he right. also uses the coin to open up the air duct in the other room so it's like that's right. also a thing that has been established like, yeah, like we he see might the have... air duct on the ground and then yeah, it's the right. coin. and actually that is although you do raise a really good point michael in terms of emphasis that the filmmaking places on that image because that is the image that we use to then fade and like we focus, the coin is like the last thing that fades out. Right, the very last shot of that scene. Yeah, 
before we cut to Bell's truck driving out to where he goes to meet Ellis. So it does sort of imply that like the coin toss just went his way. Like, or yeah, there was a 50-50 chance. I don't know. I always kind of read it as like there was a 50-50 chance he'd walk into the room where Sugar was. And then he didn't end up like picking that room. But this is the one part of the movie where it's like, yeah, everything else in this film is so intentional and so perfect. This must be intentional. But like, what, like, what is it? Well, <laughs> like, in the what? scene right before that, Tommy Lee Jones's character, Bell says like, sometimes I think he's pretty much a ghost. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if they're like trying to literally be like, he's a ghost or they're messing with the time frame of it where, because mm. also Bell notices the window is open. Like mm-hmm. he goes into the room, the lock is shot out, the window's open or okay. unlocked, yeah. Yeah, it's closed and there's a shot. I can't tell if it's a locked or not, but there's a shot of the lock. It's unlocked, yeah. At least like a very big close-up. The lock is unlocked. The window open is, is later with Carla Jean when she walks into her own house after the funeral. Right, and she sees the right. I think I think that shot of the lock, my brain doesn't register if it's if that means it's locked or it's unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not 100% clear. But yeah, that, that is the one scene of the movie that yeah, maybe I do still bump on just because it's like it feels impossible to decode mm-hmm. in a way that the rest of the movie is decodable. And that that part is like just the one most elusive moment of but maybe it's intentional and it's because it's everything. Everything is clearly intentional. I, ju- I just read the scene from the script and it's not helpful at all. OK, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I was looking for that. Also. I, I feel like that that plugs in intentionally and maybe that's kind of like the cheat code of this movie in some ways but Mm. like that we can't make sense of why he survived or not like because there is no sense to be made or to be found in any which is the whole point right Right. it's almost like that whole entire last act is just kind of like we're through the looking glass like don't try to make sense of this world. Like you are in Tommy Lee Jones's head now like you are Officer Bell and you don't understand what's what and why anything is happening and that is i think that is a valid reason to construct that scene that way to just make us feel as disoriented as he does that's really interesting yeah yeah i also love that scene visually like the cinematography is Mm -hmm. i mean again the whole movie it's stupidly good (laughs) but i feel like that's where it goes like super noir like i that's i think what i love also about like this might be my favorite deacons movie i don't know like blade runner is beautiful but like something about this is just it's perfect uh, it's just it is yeah it's perfect and like lit by like the dual headlights of the car like it's yeah it, it creates such a mood that it's just really really great Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I also want to talk about, we're talking about this one scene that's very hard to decode, but there's so many scenes in the script that are so hyper efficiently good at setting up yes. a character or a relationship. Like the the scene that where you see, meet Sheriff Ed Tom and his wife, like they exchange a couple lines, but just the staging, what they're doing, like their performances, you get the whole history of them like immediately. Same thing with Moss and Carla Jean, like 
when he comes back home and he's I in the trailer. Like, yeah. it's it's just so disgustingly good. It's yeah. written so so concisely. It's so effective. And the performances, like, the subtext that comes across with so little. The one that stood out to me is when Moss is tracking down the briefcase of money for the first time. And he opens it and is going through the money yeah. and just says, yeah, right. He just says the word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can tell there's so much in that. Yeah. yeah like, or or uh, when, he, when he decides to go back, the all right. Yeah. All right. 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 Exactly. That's a big signal for me of like a great performance and a great performance in sync with the script and the story is like broadcasting the subtext super loudly through quiet, tiny lines. Like that is, takes a lot of skill and is super impressive. I'll just say this movie, more than any other modern film, just feels like a great example of pure cinema. Like, what is this art form good for? And like, what can you do with the tools of this art form? Like, this is just the purest expression of audio visual storytelling. And it's so efficient and just does just does it. And it, it, no frills. It's just doing it mm-hmm. in the most efficient way clean, brilliant way possible. Well, what you were saying, Michael, reminds me of a little note that one of my screenwriting professors used to write on our scripts, which was LTTA. And what it stood for was let the actors act. Mm. And I don't think she abbreviated that right. But yeah, I was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) words. T for actors. (laughs) Her point was fewer words in your dialogue and also in your like direction in the script. And if you're the Coens, you can do this because you're working extensively with the best actors that there ever have been. But fewer words in the dialogue is a really good word here. And this movie is an incredible example of underwritten subtext loaded dialogue where you you've pointed to some of like the most laconic examples uh right where they're just like Llewellyn is saying virtually nothing and yet he's like conveying volumes but but Ed Tom Bell is like this too and I actually Ed Tom Bell is one of the talkiest characters and yet he still feels very underwritten Mm -hmm. right but like Chigurh is like very very underwritten and everything Carson Wells is talks a lot and in the like three scenes that he's in (laughs) but yeah it it all conveys like volumes i love woody harrelson's sigh when um he's trying to you know convey to moss that like he's gonna get killed right he's like well he's not gonna find me again any which way or something and and wells goes no you don't understand Mm-hmm. And it's just because, again, subtext exists when we, the audience, are present and we understand things the characters don't have a full understanding of, right? Moss does not have a full understanding. Like, right. he mm. thinks he does. So we're on Wells's side, right? Like, how do we as Wells convey to Moss that he doesn't understand? Obviously, more words are not going to change that fact. And just letting the actor say what we feel right like with four words essentially yeah i know i've recommended um blood simple before the Coen brothers first film but i need to say like if you are a fan of no country you have to watch blood simple it is no country practice like it Hmm. opens with shots of texas while emmett walsh delivers a monologue about the theme in voiceover and then he is the assassin coming for Francis McDormand, there is a sequence of about 20 minutes where there's 
almost no dialogue the entire time and you are putting together everything in your head and it is so captivating and so compelling. It's just watching that movie after watching No Country made me completely reappreciate it because I was like, oh my gosh, I get another one of these. Like there's actually another (laughs) one of these out there. But then to what you were saying, Trisha, about what filmmaking can do, I was reading the Carla Jean scene from the book and it's so interesting because Cormac McCarthy, he writes in this, there's no quotes or anything. There's just sort Mm -hmm. of like sentence, 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 and it it goes through. And in the movie, what we get, the Coen's joked that what they did uh, was basically just, they're like, it took two of us to write this movie because one of us could hold the book open and the other one could type. Uh, they're just like, that's how true they were to the source material and how exactly. much they just wanted to. Um, but the one big change they made, or one of the big changes they made, is the way that they present the Carla Jean sequence. So what we get is something you can do in film really well, which is show a character who is concerned about getting blood on his shoes. And then when he leaves a house, he checks his shoes. Like, boom, we get it. And then I want to read this final exchange between uh, them in the book, which is also what I was saying about Shiger knowing who he is, like sort of knowing his place in this world. So we have the, you know, he's, he's the setup is basically, he's saying, call it with the coin. And she says, no, you don't have to do this. You know, everything you see from the movie. And she says, you can, you can choose not to do this basically. And then it goes, he shook his head. You're asking that I make myself vulnerable and that I can never do. I have only one way to live. It doesn't allow for special cases, a coin toss, perhaps in this case, to small purpose. Most people don't believe that there can be such a person. You see what a problem that must be for them, how to prevail over that, which you refuse to acknowledge the, ex- the existence of how to prevail over that, which you refuse to acknowledge the existence of. Do you understand when I came into your life, your life was over. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is the end. You can say that things could have turned out differently, that there could have been some other way, but what does that mean? They are not some other way. They are this way. You're asking that I second say the world. Do you see? Yes, she said, sobbing. I do. I truly do. Good, he said. That's good. Then he shot her. <laughs> it's just like, but when you talk about what the medium can do, the fact that it's written this way, like it's all one line with no quotes, just good. He said, that's good. Then he shot her. So like it is doing something that if the film couldn't do and the film is doing something that the book couldn't do by using mm. the medium to, to punch you in the throat with it, that sort <laughs> yeah, of the right. intensity of that. I just, I love it. Yeah. That's so good. It's just like the hard, like the determinism of it also. I always right. like, mm-hmm. of yeah. just like. And and Trigger does have a line in the movie that's similar or that kind of gets at a similar thing of like, you know, if the rule that you live by brought you to this point, what good is that? Of rule? what use was the rule? Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. We may have already kind of covered this, but can we put a name to what Sugar is, like what he represents? Like, does he represent a like just a valuelessness? But he has values. Yeah, like I guess like Trisha, as the person I imagine has thought about this the most, like, do you have a definitive idea in your head of like what he represents in this story, in this movie? Does he represent a certain type of value or is he like the absence of values or just death or yeah? How do you interpret him? I mean, death is like a pretty concise way to put it, right? But Mm -hmm. but death as being, I don't know if you want to call death the great nullifier of meaning, right? Mm. which is that when you arrive at that point, it is often unexpected. It is often not poetic or meaningful or heroic or elegant or in some way linear, 
right? Like it is often not caused by anything you did do or didn't do. Like there is no way to understand it. It's finality and inevitability for all of us. And so all of those things you could also summarize as being chaos, but essentially the chaos that death sort of is and represents. So that's kind of where I see Shigur as existing and to face off against a force like that is as Ed Tom Bell says in his opening monologue to put one's soul into hazard, right? He talks about, you know, I don't want to push my chips forward and Mm -hmm. go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul into hazard, right? So he talks about putting his life into hazard, but as long as there's an orderliness to the way that he lives. He's like, I always knew you'd have to be willing to die to do this job, right? There's an, But there's an orderliness to that if you're a sheriff, you're a lawman. So like a bad guy might kill you, but you're trying to administer the law. There's a black and a white to that. But to like eventually go out and just meet chaos or something that you absolutely cannot understand, which in this case, I think death is kind of like, yeah, I, I don't want to call him the Grim Reaper. That's like a dramatic oversimplification, but I, right. yeah, but, yeah. but eventually facing that you're going to not be here anymore and you won't be able to control how or why maybe people will kill you while you're standing on your own front porch. Right. Like as that's, as in that story Ellis tells about his great uncle Max in 1909. Mm-hmm. It was like, right. <laughs> just like what, how, what year is this? I'm sorry. The math on the generations there is, right. is quite something, but yeah, I think that that's where I land with it, where it's just like Tommy Lee Jones has a way of understanding the world that doesn't include a meaningless death. Right. And then that's where Shakur comes in. Yeah. I, everything you just said, except I would zoom out further and say that even though obviously Shakur is responsible for a lot of death in this movie, I would say it's not, just death it's sort of inevitability you know ironic because thanos is also in this movie but um (laughs) (laughs) but sugar is inevitable like he is in in the and he's sort of everything you do there's a there's a chance so like the coin everything you do there's a chance it's going to go one way or a chance it's going to go another way so you know you may go to volunteer at the soup kitchen but then while you're away from your home you didn't catch the fire that burned your house down or something like that it's not just about like when you do good good dude it's not karma it's it is sort of, as you were saying, Michael, kind of a deterministic, like this is what life is. So you are, people are going to die. People are going to have bad things happen to them. Every choice you make, there are outcomes that may or may not be the result of that. So I think that it's like, yeah, death is the very, is the the most pointed and obvious result of that. But I also think it's sort of a, like if you zoom out a little bit, it is just this sense of of inevitability, time, it's all moving forward, things are going to happen and all you can do is the the little glimmer of hope we get in that final monologue is someone's going to be waiting for you making a fire hopefully right when when all this is over because it will be over and like that that's that see i don't interpret that final uh monologue as hopeful i think he's hopeful or he's hope or he's wishful at least it's kind of like a last send up of like me be at the end of it all maybe like when you get to heaven right because his dad his dad has right died right. long before he has and he's like right i had this feeling he would be there when i got there so mm-hmm. it's like maybe mm-hmm. heaven some kind of something after this right he's carrying the horn to make the fire yeah, yeah. Like, right no but, but then, then i woke, I woke up, up. <laughs> right. yeah no exactly yeah i feel like that definitely always plays for me as like he's describing like arriving at heaven and it being okay and then he wakes up right just like that's what i mean by hopeful it's like not necessarily the 
saying the Coen brothers are being hopeful. I'm saying right. Bell is being hopeful, at least at least sort of like uh, imagining this as the the best possible outcome of of his inevit- his own inevitability. Mm-hmm. To zoom out and maybe go even harder on the nihilism. I feel like the way <laughs> I feel about this movie is, you know, I think a lot about, you know, the title, right? The No Country exactly. for Old mm-hmm. Men. Mm-hmm. And that Shigur represents just like, yeah, chaos or inevitability, whatever it is, but it, it doesn't it doesn't have a moral connotation to me. It's just like this is existence and you can't fight it and things are going to change. Right. And you can think that's good or bad, but it's going to happen. And sometimes change is good. And I think I, I also can't help but like, you know, the good old days that Ed Tom Bell right. thinks about, like, weren't the good old days for everybody. Like there was right. they were not. lots of things that were like not great. And like, yeah, just things change. And like, that's okay. So it's like, it's this weird thing where Sugar is like, he's obviously a scary antagonist person. Yeah, but I'm also kind of like on his side because like... <laughs> There is no other side to be on except like this is the march forward and chaos mm. and things will change. And even, you know, when Ed Tom talks to that other sheriff and he's like, got kids with green hair and like, what's mm-hmm. even, right. once you stop yeah, saying yeah, yeah. ma'am and mister, it's all got like, so those are like kind of conservative values that like meant something, but like things change and now green hair doesn't mean you're the devil. Like right. things right. change and that's okay. And if part of that is this chaos uh, that sometimes brings misery, well, that's life. Right. And that's the constant loop is we've all been on either side of that. We've all been the people being like, man, old man, like you don't get it. You don't get what us kids are. And, you know, especially those of like those of us in our sort of thirties going in, into forties, uh-huh. like we're also, Oh wait, What's TikTok? Like, what's going on? Like, is this like endless cycle? What the hell is happening now? Right. This endless (laughs) cycle. And that is the old men thing. It's just sort of as you age, the world is changing behind you. And like, Mm. but I think there's something beautiful about a movie that just says like, but that that's the way it is. So like, let's deal with that. Yeah. I literally wrote the note at the end of like, Tommy Lee Jones looks like how Alex feels when he looks at TikTok videos. (laughs) (laughs) I make that same face. (laughs) Just really quickly, the title is an allusion to William Butler Yeats's Sailing to Byzantium, um, which is about like aging and outgrowing like optimism or like idealism that you might have when you're younger. I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but it's basically talking about like whatever is begotten, born and dies, caught in the central music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. But basically, Yates is talking about like, yeah, that change, sort of what you guys are saying, the change is inevitable. And that as we get older, we end up all having to succumb to change like and of course like ultimately death like as we get closer and closer to death we're more and more resistant to like the process that brings us right it's like sort of this escalator that you just like want to jump back down the escalator right because as it takes you closer and closer then there's no more on the other side um so you become more and more resistant to change and that's kind of everybody (laughs) like i don't you know i don't see anybody like wanting things to continue continue to change faster and faster as they get older and older i don't know Mm. it's hard to see myself even myself wanting that right well and thinking back through the movie you know these three main characters we've got yeah llewellyn anton and ed you know you they do represent almost this uh you could look at them as like these different 
kind of like cultural value moments. Like you've got Ed representing mm. the traditional, like, you know, conservative and, you know, maybe more religious and more innocent kind of a, a, a moment in American history where it's like, you know, one segment of the population could relax comfortably in kind of safe communities and everybody believes the same thing. Everybody has the same, you know, shared language and values. And there's like this traditional comfort in that, that is slipping away. And then you've got Llewellyn is living in this modern world ruled by money. Modern in the 1970s, which I think is interesting. Yeah. This mm -hmm. is a period film. So exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Modern, not 1980. Not no, not to not to 2021, but yeah, it's 1980 where it's like, you know, this Llewellyn is not being driven by traditional kind of old school moral values. He's like, we're going to get rich, honey, and we're going to like get away with this mm -hmm. money and, and like, you know, quit working at Walmart. Yeah, quit working on Walmart. You know, that's that's the kind of like, you know, capitalist, you know, we're seeking material resources kind of value system. And then Anton is kind of like this postmodern like just screwing with the whole thing just being like all y'all are screwed like reality here's reality to come bite you in the ass so it's another it's another way to read this film there's i just the more we talk about it the more ways i'm seeing to read this and mm -hmm. i love it and it's just so good well and quickly just to you know highlight what you just said about money and capitalism obviously this movie is about money pretty fundamentally in a lot of ways. And so, you know, we're talking about sort of these like philosophical ideas about like death and inevitability, but it all exists within this capitalist society and this like struggle for money. And so, right. you know, talking about chaos, a lot of what happens is chaos, but it's chaos that's driven by just like a crazed pursuit of a satchel of money. Right. right. Like if Llewellyn had just walked the hell away. <laughs> like, like, but it's, it's, but it's too much money. Like it's, it's, it's it is, it's, it's, it's too much money to walk away from. And it's, it's the perfect amount that nobody can walk away from this money. Right. And I, I just feel like it's interesting where the money piece keeps being like underscored by different things. And Shigur is kind of the only person who doesn't care about it, but everybody else is being pushed and pulled by money. And I think the dual scenes where, Llewellyn uses money to buy clothes, like to get into Mexico and how that's echoed in the end where like basically Shigur also has to like use money to buy clothes from some young men. And they're both like dealing with younger men where they're like, here, give me this, you know, give me your jacket mm -hmm. and your beer mm -hmm. and I'm going to use that to get to Mexico. I'm wounded, whatever. And those kids that are like a little older, they're like teens. Those are teens that are already poisoned buy the like lust for money where he's bleeding mm. and they just are like, let him hold the money. Right. Like, mm. even though he's like, Oh, it's right here. Just take it. They're already poisoned by that. And they're so, you know, greedy for that money that they're mm -hmm. willing to extort this bleeding person. And then the younger kids, Caleb Landry Jones and right. his buddy, you know, who are dealing with Shigur at the very end, like at first are like, no, no, you can just have my shirt. Like you can just have it. Mm -hmm. But then when they he gives him the money, it's like one of the mm -hmm. last things that we hear in that scene is like, well, half of that money is mine. Well, it's like, but you still have your shirt. And they're just, they already, those two young boys, they're kids start fighting over the money mm -hmm. and it, the Coens just seem really concerned with reminding us about like the fighting over the money is also what hastens like your demise or just like this 
Yeah, the the ugliness of life is just brought about by like people just fighting over money all the time. It's also a really interesting comparison between Moss and Sugar at the very beginning. I noticed this first time where we see Sugar say, hold still when he kills the man. And then we uh-huh. cut to Moss and he says, hold still before he shoots to the deer. deer. Mm-hmm. Just lots of, yeah parallels between them throughout that are are really interesting and there's so much to talk about we could go on and on i think we're gonna pivot to lessons before we get into lessons uh just a couple things to announce so we passed 900 patrons already which is so exciting and really cool so that means our episode on our top 10 favorite films of the 1990s 1990 to 1998 will be coming out with a patron exclusive on our top five favorite films of 1999 that will be coming down the road so keep an eye out for that also no time to die is out today Ah! uh, which we're all very excited about (laughs) so we're gonna go watch it this weekend and then have a patron exclusive episode on our thoughts and reactions to no time to die coming out next week so keep an eye out for that and Finally, a reminder that for our $5 and up patrons, we're doing an exclusive series on Foundation, the Apple TV Plus show, where we share our thoughts and reactions week by week to each episode. So very busy. There's a lot going on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cool. Okay. So lessons. Alex, what's your lesson from No Country for Old Men? Yeah. Every time I watch this movie, it just reminds me, like it, I mentioned earlier, the the pure cinema feeling of this film. And, you know, I'm somebody, you know, talk about Foundation, for example. I'm a sci-fi nerd. I like overly complex world building and scientific mumbo jumbo and, you know, lots of exposition and just all that nonsense. I'm a nerd for that. But it's good to be reminded of what actually draws us into a scene. Mm-hmm. And often the scene is very simple and it's just a matter of life and death and the stakes have been established the characters are complex and interesting and have really strong motivations and desires. And then we just watch that simple problem play out. And it is the most compelling thing you could ever imagine. And it's so it's just a coin toss, a coin toss, right? It's just mm-hmm. the right characters with the right context, the simplest possible scene can be the most thrilling, engaging thing ever. So it's just a good reminder that, The thing that matters is not having a convoluted plot with the most twisty turniness going on. It's about really complex, fascinating characters we love to watch who have strong desires that are at odds. Put them in a room together, put them in a situation that is intractable and let it play out. That is really what we're here for. Just a good reminder when I go off into my sci-fi la la land, (laughs) that's not necessarily what audiences are here for. That can all be fun. But at the end of the day, they're here for that simple scene that is just so good because of those characters and the situation Mm -hmm. and the desires. Yeah. Yes. It's a great lesson. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, mine's actually kind of related to that just in that this is a really good example of a movie that you should watch if you are for some reason wary of putting theme in your story. Mm. No need. 
<laughs> it's for eighth grade book reports. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they're like there are eighth grade book reports that are better than some of like the end of Game of Thrones. Anyway, oh. this is what I'm saying. <laughs> We talked about how this movie opens with a monologue about the theme, about the passing of time, about how you feel lost when things are changing, about the inevitability that that will be the case for you and how death and violence will come to all of us at some point. Like, that's what the opening monologue is about. It's beautifully delivered by Tommy Lee Jones over those incredible, like, dawn, like, landscapes and those... So good. But it starts us there. So we're already thinking about those themes as the movie starts off. We know what to be on the lookout for. They're signposting for us. Like, hey, this movie is about aging and Westerns and the themes that Westerns deal with and how things change and da, da, da. And like, it, here's the character you're going to end up with also. Like, even though we're going to introduce you to these, like the central protagonist and the antagonist along the way. And Tommy Lee Jones is going to kind of seem like he's just sort of out there on the periphery, not really influencing events, just kind of trying to process and make sense of them. That's where we're going to end up, right? Mm. It sets us off on a thematic trajectory, which it never varies from. Every scene is kind of about those things. Um, or at least we can read them through that lens because we have been prepared to think about them through the lens of the theme. Thank God. Like, it is one of the best examples I could think of to point to and say, this is why themes should be in the DNA of your script. It's why it should be in the DNA of your film. You need to know what the hell it's about. Not necessarily before you start writing, but definitely before you start shooting. Like, if you find it in the writing process, great and fine. Mm -hmm. But it should be in every frame of the movie, or it could be. Like, that's an opportunity that you have. And it doesn't have to be flattened or simplified we just spent more than an hour pretty much unpacking <laughs> the different themes that are in this movie and we didn't even come close to scratching the surface of every single place that those themes can be found sure because they're they're everywhere mm -hmm. they're in the set design they're in every moment of every performance they're in the sound design they're in the lack of music uh -huh. <laughs> and just the sound <laughs> of like blowing wind over the prairie the theme is absolutely everywhere in every speck of this film and we are as the audience are prepped to engage it when you tell us that that's what you're doing that's what this movie is and that's why the final four scenes of this movie break your heart so mm -hmm. completely because we are ready for them they're not just random they're not caused but they are specific and connected. They're with characters that we care about, but they're not the scenes that we expect. And yet they still feel of the theme. And so we are ready to have ourselves like stretched and broken by the conclusion of this movie. I could go on. But anyway, <laughs> please do a theme for the love of God. <laughs> In your screenplays. That's all and Trisha wants. Just, <laughs> just have a goddamn theme. <laughs> it shows that theme can be in the DNA of a movie about anything, even a dinosaur. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we have a video about that. You can watch that too. Yeah, those are Alex's lesson, your lesson, Trisha, like are just nice, like simple back to basics, like have a scene that 
matters and is compelling and then have a theme so that scene has meaning and right. you will have a great story. Good work, everybody. That's a movie. You did right. it. <laughs> it's yeah. as simple and as hard as that. Yes, yeah. exactly. So true. Brian, what's your lesson? I mean, based on both those things, mine is less simple, but supporting uh, all of that, which is this idea of the filmmaker gods, which I know I mentioned yeah. earlier in this episode and I mentioned in previous episodes, but I felt like this would be a good time to sort of like actually wrap my brain around what I mean when I say that. And and when I started thinking about this, I was like, just for starters, people seem to forget that things happen in a movie because the filmmakers made them happen that way, right? <laughs> like people seem to think that like a movie could only be one way and that's just how it is. So, and of course- some movies are based on books where the, the original author, but whatever, like the storyteller, whoever said this thing is happening, they said it for a reason. You know, they know the easy and satisfying choice is for Rocky to win or for Frodo to confidently drop the ring into Mount Doom or for the Joker to have an origin story. They know that is the easy and satisfying thing that audiences are going to expect. So when they do something else, it's usually for a reason. We may not like the reason, we may not agree with it, but there's this sense that it's bad writing because the good guy lost, or it's bad writing because it's like, if you don't understand why it happened, or if you do understand it and you don't like it, those are two different things. You can get into it, go listen to our Last of Us Part 2 episode. <laughs> but yeah, it's like as if it never occurred to the storytellers that like they could have done it a different way, right? So of course, when it's well done, it's done for a thematic reason or at least a plot reason. At least it was like, well, this thing had to happen so that this necessary plot thing could happen. So that's just the start of like things happen for a reason. It's not a coincidence that like movies have scenes that you maybe didn't expect or that happen in a different way. But then what comes from there is how that filmmaker, that storyteller chooses to do that thing. So a simple version, which I mentioned before, you know, a character who's narcissistic is walking down the street, checking himself out in the window, gets hit by a bus because he doesn't, because he was looking at his own reflection, right? So a very clear, like the, your flaw caused your own punishment. Like that is just sort of a nice and neat karma kind of thing. But then you have what I call the filmmaker gods, where the filmmaker steps in and says, well, we kind of need to intervene here. The term deus ex machina literally comes, uh, literally means God from the machine. It comes from ancient Greek theater where during a play, the gods would would very literally show up and <laughs> do something because like it wasn't happening or the protagonist couldn't do it or something couldn't happen. So the storytellers had to say, well, we have to sort of intervene now and, and do this thing. Like you want to see this character punished. So we are going to punish them for you. So even if like the good guy didn't get the bad guy, the bad guy will still get got. Right. And then you have no country for old men where you have that so frustrating car crash scene where you kind of think like, oh, okay, now the filmmaker gods are going to come in and they are going to save the day because if, you know, this is all inevitable, then this character of Shigur should be prone to it too, right? He can get hit randomly by a car just like anybody else can have. But no, because the character is this this inevitability. He is this this death, this chaos, this whatever. So he is unstoppable. So, you know, the reason that it happens is because of the theme. It's because of what they're trying to say. That's the whole point, right? Is that like they are continually saying, you want the good guy to win. Sorry, he's dead. You want the, the bad guy to, to get punished. Nope, sorry, he walks away. You want the other good guy 
you want the movie to end on not just a dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it is doing all this stuff for all these thematic reasons. It's doing it so beautifully, but it's it, the idea that it's playing with that sort of filmmaker God thing. But the very simple lesson is just remember that you can be that person. Like anything you tell in your story is your way of saying right. like that. That's a very simple way of putting theme. Like whatever you are doing in your story is, is how you are saying the thing that you want to say. So what are you trying to say? And then go make your story do that thing. So if you if you want to say this thing about greed, then show characters being greedy and getting punished for it. You know, like it's that easy. You can be very complicated and go no country and do all sorts of meta on it. But there's a very simple way of doing it too. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, yeah, like the choices of the filmmaker gods are the theme. Like, the, right. like those, exactly. those, those choices are what theme are. Exactly. Do a theme. <laughs> yes, do a theme. And as you're pointing out, Brian, it's like no country does it next level because right. it's right. the form of like the medium is the message. Like it's right. doing the thing to put you. That's why it's just like <sighs> it knows your expectations. It knows what like westerns are supposed it to be. It breaks your expectations. Yeah. Right. It does it on all the levels, and then adds another level on top, and then does it again. It's super good. But it doesn't break your expectations just to break expectations. Hashtag Game of Thrones. <laughs> Hashtag a lot of things, yeah. right? Right. right. Yeah. If you want to mess with the rules, you need to know why they're there. And you need to break them in very specific ways. Don't just break them in any old which way. Got to break right. them very specifically. That's why you need to know your theme. Yep. <laughs> wow. It all comes back, doesn't it? It all comes back. Yeah, I, I have kind of like two like mini lessons because I forgot my first lesson until just now and I'd still like it. So I'm going to say it. But I really like smart protagonists that make choices that I can yes. get on board with. Yes, yes. And I feel like Moss is just 100% that. Like I am not yes. that human being at all, but I'm completely with him in every choice he makes. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, that does Big make sense. Time. You are smart to think of that or like, okay, cool. So I buy into him. Get Out is the other one I think about a lot, which we have mm-hmm. to talk about at some point. We're like, I love Get Out because I'm with the protagonist. I'm like, yeah, you should be worried. I'm glad you are raising these concerns. You're not just like a dumb person that's like wandering through this situation, ignorant so that the filmmaker gods can pretend like there's a plot happening. You have a smart protagonist that's making rational choices. And yet the antagonist is so well designed in this that it's not enough. And so I just love that that that's just another thing this movie does so well is like, I'm completely on board with the protagonist and their journey, but also the struggle is designed to be exactly the most hard thing for that character, despite his intelligence and cleverness and all that stuff. I mean, this is a hallmark of the genre, but I really love all the scenes where we just get to watch characters like do very small tasks that are like building up to a plan that's uh-huh. like really smart. So like we're just like watching Moss cut hangers apart and like tie them to the rod from the closet. And we don't know why, but it's like little, these little things where it's like, he's going to go buy a bunch of tent poles. Okay. <laughs> and they build up to like, what is a really smart plan ultimately. And so it just, I wanted to say this earlier, but it's just one of the many examples of how this movie trusts us as the audience to be intelligent and to follow what's happening and put together 
without spelling it out in dialogue or like really hammering it in the filmmaking. It's like, we're just going to watch a character do a bunch of small little things and put it together ourselves. It just gives us so much dignity as the audience. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I really, it's so refreshing to watch a movie like this. It feels yeah. good. Yeah. 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 It's a smart movie. <laughs> It respects the audience. It doesn't condescend, but it also doesn't like try to trick us or like lie. And like it's telling you, but it's letting you, it's telling you in a way that lets you be a part of the telling. Mm -hmm. And that kind of plugs in a little bit too. I was also thinking this time, sort of for the first time, because usually I'm caught up in all the other amazingness that's going on, but just the basic idea of perspective and how you, what perspective you play a scene from. And it's interesting that sometimes we're really with Shigur and other times we're really with Moss. And the two examples that jumped out at me are once Shigur has figured out which hotel the money is in, right? Which hotel room for the first time. And you see him do his little routine where he checks into the other hotel and I'm going to open the door and like, okay, get a lay of the land. And you see mm-hmm. him and then he, like he takes his socks off. You, you watch him do that whole thing. And it's fascinating to see how he works. Like telling that sequence from the perspective of him is really compelling and stressful in its own way. And then later... There is the scene where we see that whole thing from Moss's perspective where he's checked into a hotel and he like hears a noise and calls on the phone and the guy downstairs isn't there and you see uh, the chat like so good. And so it's it's doing different perspectives and it's also using the fact that it did the earlier perspective to inform the other per- uh-huh. like it's just so good. Yes. Two plus yeah. two. Yeah. Dude, that scene is so long where they're in the Hotel Eagle, which is actually the midpoint where they first meet yeah. for the the Clash, first time you know, as much as any of the three protagonists meet in this movie <laughs> right. right that's why that is like the midpoint right? right where it's an actual confrontation the only one in the, the whole movie basically but the scene where it's like the build-up to sugar is coming is so long it's mm-hmm. minutes and minutes that drag by where like moss is like looking for the transponder transmitter thing he finally finds it he realizes and then like he calls down to the desk and no one's there. And then the light goes out in the hallway and he's just sitting and staring at the door and the shots just go ticking by for like seconds and seconds. There's no music. God, (laughs) it's so good. And you know what's going on on the other side of the door because again of what they've... Well, you know the lock is going to come flying right (laughs) at him. Right. So terrifying. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) Yep. So those are some lessons from No Country for Old Men. (laughs) We could keep going and find near endless numbers of them. Um, But we will not. We will talk about what you guys have been watching recently. Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I decided to catch up on a cinematic landmark that was a hole in my filmography. White Chicks? (laughs) (laughs) How did you know? Uh, No, I watched Scarface for the first time. Wow. (laughs) The Al Pacino Scarface? 1983, yeah. Yeah. yep. Brian De Palma and Al Pacino. Um, I had not ever seen it. And it is three hours long. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I didn't know that. You haven't seen it either? No. What happens for three hours in that movie? I haven't seen I it either. It's just... I mean, there's a lot of Tiger. There's a lot of 80s music. There's a lot wow. of... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Al Pacino just doing a whole thing. There's... I'm so sorry. It, it is pretty early on. I'm going to spoil a pretty early on scene. There's a whole scene with a chainsaw mm. that I just didn't need in my life. Like, no, no. 
look, I've seen a lot of De Palma movies. I haven't seen them all, but I got to be getting close. And this was pretty a lot, even for De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty a lot. <laughs> um, anyway, there's a reason this movie is iconic. Um, there's a lot of iconic moments. Michelle Pfeiffer rules in it. Yeah. Like, I wish I had her haircut. I wish I had her whole thing in it. If you could get her whole thing without doing a lot of coke somehow. And it's just like, it just has so much going, you know, it just that has that epic scope to it. It just yeah. feels like really big at every moment. Like even from the first couple minutes of the movie, you're like, damn, I'm getting into like a whole big thing. I'm excited that when we hit the thousand patron mark, we're going to talk about the Godfather. Mm. Cause I feel like the conversations you could have about Scarface, you could have about the Godfather, but like more so. But anyway, Scarface, very glad I finally checked it off my list. Sometime, Brian, you're going to have to do one of your uh, Al Pacino impressions from this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the impression of the impression. <laughs> I feel like the only quotes I can think of I can't say on this podcast. So I'll yeah, save well, it for I, know. I was, <laughs> was going to do a few myself, and then I was like, I absolutely cannot. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to say it's worth it, but I am sort of glad I, I went ahead and did the whole thing. It probably took me several weeks like to watch it. Like, to get through it? I was wow. watching it in like 20 minute intervals. Uh-huh. I, like, didn't have, I didn't have any more in me at like one time, but I did get through it anyway. Scarface 1983, Brian De Palma. I, I don't know what to tell you if you're not here yet. Yeah. Uh, you could skip it um, or, you know, you could just finally go ahead and just, you know. Screenplay by Oliver cool. Stone. Yeah, Oliver Stone. Oh, you know what? It's a really good example of inevitability, you know? Mm. Sort of like mm. in the theme of No Country for Old Men, you know, Scarface comes for us all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating movie because I feel like it's the it's like the best bad movie in the sense that Yes, that's a really good example. That like most people who watch it nowadays are like, this isn't a good movie, but when you look at no, every single critical that it's like lauded and top of top movies of all time kind of lists and so it's like everybody loves it but also everybody like acknowledges that it's not good which is really interesting it's just like so big like every Mm. scene of it is so big and al pacino is just chewing the scenery and you're just like okay like did the room need to look like that there are so many mirrors the shag carpet is so deep there's an enormous mountain of cocaine like you have so many guns i think that there were hundreds of bullets like thousands of bullets fired i don't know i'm sorry i've got to spoil another thing there's a scene where somebody gets hung from a helicopter yeah and i'm like a balcony would have done a chair would have done the trick like you did it from a helicopter this is a really good example of what Scarface is. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of crazy in, in a cool way, but <laughs> again, <laughs> it's like an R-rated Fast and Furious kind of a setup. Sounds uh, like right, yeah. the, but it's taking itself deadly serious. Uh-huh. The other thing. <laughs> anyway, awesome. Okay, Scarface, great. Brian, what have you been watching? I've done my one, one of my watchings at a little out of order, so I'm gonna. Tarantino it now and do an origin story of why I've been watching some older movies uh, like Truffaut and uh, and Brief Encounter, which is a couple months ago, I went to a screening of La Dolce Vita, the Fellini nice. film. And Love that movie. I, I had seen a couple Fellini over the years, but it'd been a while. I didn't really remember it. So I watched La Dolce Vita and I was like, this is really fascinating and interesting and challenging. And I, I got I to gotta watch some more to figure this out. So then I spent the next 
few days watching Ivitaloni, La Strada, Knights of Kiberia, and Eight and a Half. So I just went through like a whole like the top five Fellinis. And it was really fascinating to watch from with, with a modern lens because the recurring theme is of, of all of his movies is like despicable men and the women who have to deal with them, basically. And I was I was reading up and Fellini's basically been both praised for satirizing like machismo and, you know, what we would now call toxic masculinity, but also criticized for being like, but maybe you didn't do it the best like you know like you tried and your heart was in the right place but eh, that's kind of ugly and so it was interesting watching the the first two la dolce vita and ivitaloni which have male protagonists where i'm going am i supposed to be rooting for these guys because they're like sympathetic dicks and like i'm not quite sure how what's going on here but then going into la strada and knights of cabiria where um julietta messina who was married to fellini uh she plays the lead in both and she gives these two completely different performances and they're both excellent and that's where i started to go okay I'm definitely not supposed to be rooting for the men like they they may be empathetic and that's fine. But like, that's not who I'm supposed to be rooting for. Now I have a better understanding of what he's trying to do here. And all of that was the perfect setup to then go into eight and a half, which nice. is just the perfect culmination of everything because you have this male protagonist and and like the movie is completely about women and his relationship to women. But like going in with that sort of foreknowledge of having watched the other films, I was like, okay, cool. Instead of being like really bonkers and like off-putting, this makes so much sense and it's insane and so much fun to watch. Uh, so yeah, it's it's like, I really appreciate what you're doing here. And you're just, you know, it's sort of like a Coen Brothers thing where it's someone who is just having a lot of fun with the filmmaking and sort of is like, we can just go into a dream sequence for 20 minutes. Cause like, that's what this movie is. That's what we're doing. Go have fun. It's a dream sequence, you know, strap in. So yeah, go watch some Fellini. I would recommend watching it roughly in that order, you know, hit me up. I can give you some recommendations, but <laughs> like I just, it was just the perfect thing to watch it in that order where I felt like eight and a half was a movie I'd seen before, but didn't quite get. And then now it was like this perfect payoff to like, I had, I had the vocabulary to appreciate it. Very nice. Awesome. Cool. Love a classic film recommendation. Yeah. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes, so you can hit Brian up there and get all the recommendations. What I've been watching, I've mentioned before on the show, but there's a new season of Fox Explained on mm. Netflix. Ooh. And I've realized that it is one of my favorite shows of all time which is maybe a weird <laughs> wow. thing to say. because it's That's like, a very Michael thing to say. I was going to say, incredibly on brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Video essays, the show. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're like, yeah, these 20-minute documentary explainer things, but like no other show consistently, like literally makes me cry. Like, mm. like this show for some reason, and I've been trying to unpack that and figure out why. And I, I have a kind of thesis, but so... If you don't know it, it's these like 20 to 30 minute episodes on Netflix where it just explains a topic and it does so in a way that to me feels objective, very non-judgmental, tries to kind of quickly show you all the different sides of an issue. And some of them are serious issues. Some of them are fun issues. So for like, for example, the season one episode was about sugar and the health ramifications of eating too much sugar. What parts of uh, all of that is false? What was kind of constructed to put down fake sugar things and make you think that like fake sugar causes cancer? Like it kind of clears the air of all of that. Talks about royalty flags. Why are flags so important and meaningful? <laughs> dogs. There's an episode about dogs narrated by Jake Gyllenhaal that 
like ultimately it's just about like dogs can essentially feel love and and our our best friends and like gets into the science of it it proves they love us yeah i'm looking at the list of narrators right now and it's insane ethan hawke samira wiley rain wilson yeah yeah Terry terry russell John Waters, J.K. Simmons, yeah. Yeah, so like each episode has a different narrator. Great, uh, yeah, end of oil chest, like your skin, apologies. What is a good apology? Hurricanes, plastic surgery, dance crazes. Anyway, they cover all this like really wide range of topics, but I feel like what it does to kind of throw back a little bit, when Obama was running for president, <laughs> there was a okay. lot of speeches about like hope, right? And I feel like what happened was I heard speeches about America and what it could be. And like, I suddenly found myself getting emotional because it made me remember that I deeply cared about our country and people and what we could be. And it like reawakened this like love that had been buried under the cynicism of like, you know, eight, you know, George Bush years and all that stuff. (laughs) And I feel like this Vox series does the same thing with me, but like, for humanity Whoa. as a whole, like hearing, like watching an episode about like dance and just like, yeah, we are like meant to dance and be together and it expresses something. And it's something that like connects us. And it, I don't know, it pierces through all of my cynicism that I've built up over many years. And it just like reminds me that I care about humanity. So it's like, it makes me remember that I'm invested in the world and also is like educating me about important things that are useful to like have in your head as you're going through life. So Vox explained season three, thumbs up from Michael. Wow. So if you too are a robot, you could watch this and try to remember maybe that you are human deep inside. Or if you're, yeah, struggling with cynicism and objective facts about how like some things in the world are good help you, this is a great series. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense from what I know about you, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's like, this is a scientific, like undisputable, like laying out of facts that there is good in the world. This is why you, why dancing is good. Yeah, (laughs) right. Like, you can't deny this. The science of dancing and the science of dogs. I didn't enjoy dancing (laughs) until I understood it. It's it's like, yeah, it's a really nice, like, reminder of, like, oh, right, dancing is a thing that I don't think about. But I love dancing. Dancing is great. Like, there are good things in the world. Anyway. Yeah. It's beautiful. It it is a great series. I I love it as well. Alex, what have you been watching? So I'm going to recommend to our listeners, if you are like me and you love the composer Max Richter... (gasps) I do. Yeah, he's so wonderful. His music is just, it just hits this sweet, sweet spot for me of like bittersweet, melancholy gorgeousness. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple movies on Mubi, which I'd recommend you check out. It could be a nice Max Richter double feature. Be very trippy, sleepy, wandery <laughs> double feature. <laughs> okay. But these are both movies that I really loved. So one of them is called Max Richter's Sleep, which is a music documentary about this really ambitious, crazy thing Max Richter did for, I guess, a few years. He toured, he came to LA, was one of the places he came, with this eight-hour like symphony, basically, that was meant to be listened to while you were drifting in and out of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> to basically put you like like kind of catch your brain in that like hypnagogic state between waking and sleeping and dreaming and it's meant to be like 
just getting into your soul in this other way that you wouldn't let in while fully awake and attentive and trying to like focus on music. In this documentary, they like both are covering the kind of backstory of Max Richter, who he is, his family, his life, why he does what he does, mixed in with this kind of it's like it's like a concert film about them staging this crazy thing in downtown LA where they like took over Grand Park, I think it was Grand Park, and had cots all over the park and just invited people to come Whoa. lay down in the park. I think I remember this when it happened. Yeah, like it happened just a few years ago. And people just like were given blankets and cots and just said, just come lay here and we're going to play music all night and like let it, you, you can just soak it in. And so it's a really, it's a really cool, interesting, beautiful music documentary. And then you can follow that up with an equally strange, interesting movie called The Congress starring Robin Rice. Mm. Really trippy movie that that has one of the most gorgeous Max Richter scores in which Robin Wright plays herself as a, an aging actress with a son who has like a disability who is looking for a way to like, you know, kind of, get back her career it's a really fun like meta movie where like she's going to like a paramount style lot and they have like posters of her from the princess bride and her agent saying like you know you could have been the biggest star in the world but you like you kept turning down these offers and you wanted to only play these interesting roles anyway it's this weird like self-referential meta movie that then becomes a crazy animated like trip because the <laughs> idea of the movie is that they digitize her they're like you don't have to act anymore we're gonna digitize your body and like soul and we'll just own your we'll own the ip of robin wright and then she's with john ham and a bunch of other actors like in <laughs> a crazy like anime digital worlds and it just becomes like a fever dream wow and it's got an amazing max richter score so wow. that is my wow. trippy sleepy wandery uh movie double feature for you Max Richter's Sleep and the Congress. Uh, you will feel weird and you will feel sad. <laughs> I think I feel high just listening to you talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> this is definitely in, like one of my what is Alex watching generated things. Like it's just like insert actor here. John Hamm. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Robin oh, Wright. Great. Yeah. Anyway, that is my recommendation. And they're both currently on movie. Awesome. Well, yes. If you haven't picked it up, this episode is sponsored by <laughs> movie. <laughs> which I'm really happy about because they were one of our earliest sponsors and kind of helped get the podcast off the ground. So mm -hmm. always welcome to have Mubi here. If you haven't heard of them, Mubi is the curated streaming service featuring exceptional films from all around the world. These are the kind of films you can find on Mubi. They have a lot of different things. They have art house stuff. They also have some mainstream things. There's a very eclectic collection of films. If you want to have a chance in hell of knowing like what Trish has watched or what Alex <laughs> has watched apparently for <laughs> what we're watching, Mubi is great for that. And if you want 30 days of movie for free you just sign up at movie.com slash beyond the screenplay by heading to that link you are supporting our show and also getting a month of great cinema for free so win-win you have a double trippy feature waiting for you uh i kind of want to do is the eight hour thing available like can i play it i think on spotify there is the full Whoa. sleep concert and like i think it is meant to be like you just play it on a speaker by your bed and let it soak into your soul overnight, which I I should do. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that tonight. We'll see. Yeah. But yes, thank you to Movie for sponsoring this episode. Again, sign up at movie.com slash beyond the screenplay. This has been our second conversation about <laughs> No Country for Old Men. If you are a brave patron who has listened to the original episode that we recorded wow. on my iPhone, let us know if we covered the same things, but I don't 
think so. I feel like we definitely yeah. could not we have. We did a lot of two plus two in that and not a lot here. So hopefully, yeah. 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 Now this was like a whole new thing, which is great. That was really fun. Again, thank you to all of our listeners for being with us for a hundred episodes. It's insane. We're so, so grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you to the patrons as always for making the show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner and Alex Cayeros. As I mentioned, all of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Thank you again. And we will see you in the next episode for... Well, we're just we're just going to start at number one again now, right? So like... <laughs> The dead, <laughs> Devil Wears Prada. We'll get the yeah. searching guys back. Yeah. We've got a hundred good movies. We'll just talk about them forever. It's like dark. Yeah. <laughs> there is no beginning or ending. We're going to make Trisha watch dark again. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we will see you next episode for Psycho, the 1960, you know, the Psycho. Yeah. We should also do the the Anne Heche and uh, what's his Vince name? Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Yeah. The Gus Van Sant shot for shot remake. There you go. Some of us will watch that one. Some of us will watch the original and we'll compare notes. (laughs) We'll see you next time. (laughs) We love you. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This is why we need an Eric to clean up all of that. No. He will. (laughs) 